Welcome to another episode of the Dentology Podcast, where we discuss the business of dentistry. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing all the non-clinical aspects of dentistry, from goodwill values, finance, marketing, how to buy and sell a dental practice mindset, through to where you can invest your money in team management issues. My name is Andy Acton, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Trevens. Let's jump straight into it. Well, a lovely chat with um, Ali Abdulbagi, who um, is now the owner of uh, Mumbles Dental Spa over in South Wales. And such an interesting start in life for him um, and the way his parents created an environment to um, give him really strong roots and a sense of what was important really has is, has given him that foundation for moving forward and, and the things that he's done clinically but also in business and to hear his story of buying a practice I think will be really encouraging and motivational for people who are on that path but also the rawness of it um, in that it's not easy and it won't suit everybody so now i imagine people can take a lot from that episode and i was very grateful for for Andy's time today it was great so welcome to another episode of dentology the business of dentistry podcast and i'm flying solo today uh, my co-host chris isn't well at the moment um but i couldn't miss the opportunity of speaking to ali so ali abdul bahi is the principal of mumbles dental spa which is the west side of Swansea Bay in Wales. Uh, a lifelong learner, loves his CPD, um, completing his MClindent, uh, which is a significant study programme. Uh, welcome, Annie. How are you doing? Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me on. No, not at all. Not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to have you here. So I'm looking forward to hearing your, your journey because you've only recently bought a, a dental practice. So it'd be good to find out about that. But before we get to that, um, can we sort of set the scene? Because you were born in Sudan, which for uh, people that are kind of loose on their geographies, kind of just below Egypt in North Africa, where you qualified as a dentist. Um, I, I was reading up and it's one of the poorest countries in, in the world. And just last week, there were a million people affected by a serious flood in southern Sudan. So what was what was your upbringing like in Sudan? What, what was that like as a child rally? Well, it, uh, technically, I was born in Saudi Arabia, right across the sea from Sudan. Um, but we spent a, a lot of time jumping over and crossing borders back to Sudan. Um, my my parents are, both had a very poor upbringing. Um, they've worked really hard throughout their lives to become who they are. They're both doctors at the moment, both consultants. Um, and I think one thing they wanted to ingrain in us is to remind us of where we came from. Um, I mean, I consider myself quite privileged in the upbringing that we had, but we, there was constant reminders. We were sent back to the villages um, in our summer holidays. So it's, it was quite humbling having that experience. So although we did go to international schools um, in, the, in Saudi Arabia, when it came to my university, we did go back to Sudan and I finished my university there. Mm. Um, and it's, I, I say to people, it, I've got a couple of minds in my head. I've got the Welsh head, I've got the Saudi head, I've got the Sudanese head, and it's, and each one of those has it's their own experiences, basically. Yeah, it's interesting. A guy called Jake Humphrey, um, who who has um, his own podcast, high performance podcast. He talks about roots and wings. And he says that as a, as a parent, you need to give your, your kids strong roots so they know where they come from, good principles, they know what's important, but also give them the confidence and, and the wings to go and fly and have a future and succeed. And it sounds to me like perhaps that might have been in your parents' thinking with not necessarily just giving you a, a life of privilege which might have been available to you to make sure that you understood those those roots from Sudan. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, there's, they always came hand in hand. It's whenever you, whenever we did have a helping hand from my parents, it was always a harsh reminder of we we never had this. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but it teaches you value, I think. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So, so do you still do you still have family in Sudan? Do you go back to Sudan at all, or, or is that part of your past? Um, I still, well, I haven't gone over the last couple of years. Uh, things have been disturbed quite a bit in Sudan. Um, mm. Politics, change of government, all that. So I've been quite busy with all of this and work and all that. But before that, I was, I'd go back at least once a year. It hasn't happened since the last four, three, four years. But before that, I was going every single December. Right, yeah. Yeah, and what, I, I must admit, I don't know a huge amount about Sudan, but, but to describe what's Sudan like, what are the people like in Sudan? Sudan is a fusion of cultures. Um, you've got, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very rich country in its culture. Um, the people are extremely diverse. We're a nice mix of everything. You've got the, you know, we've got, we blend with the Arabs on the east side. We blend with the rest of Africa on the south. We blend with the Moroccans and the Libyans and the Egyptians on the north side. And, and it's just a nice blend of people. The only way you can describe us is Sudanese people. If you try and make them marginalize them one way or the other, you'll just, it, it just won't work. Right. But what unifies is that we're Sudanese people. Life in Khartoum was, for me, was quite, it's quite modern in Khartoum. Um, it, it's you, you can't spend a day in Sudan without being surrounded by people. You can't have a quiet day to yourself. And that's one thing that was quite difficult to get used to moving to the UK. You know, you go to the corner shop and you buy some bread and the guy there will ask you about your aunt or your uncle or this. They'll know who you are. They'll have a full-on conversation with you. You can't sort of seclude yourself and say, right, I'm going to have a quiet moment to myself. And then you go from there to moving to the, moving somewhere where you don't know anyone. Mm. Um, even when you do go out, everyone does say hello and says goodbye, but no one has a personal conversation with you. So that was the, a the, big The British shift. are quite reserved. Uh, I think if you get a hello from somebody, you've done quite well. I think we tend to walk along looking at the pavement in our shoes as opposed to smiling at people as we walk along. I think COVID changed that a bit. I think people got a little bit more social. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not the, 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 the Sudanese way. But it's interesting because that that very social side yeah we've we've met up at different social events and and you know dental d- dental parties um and, and you are a very social person so whether that's kind of carry through but you are you 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 love a party you you love socializing so that you, you certainly kept Imagine that right country full of us. That's, that's exactly how Sudan is. <laughs> so um so what brought you to the uk uh, was were, were there connections here how did you end up in the uk well my parents are both connected professionally to the UK. They've both done postgrad training here. They're both um, Royal College members. And it almost made sense that we're going to end up in the UK at one point or the other. Especially when my older two siblings, for different reasons, ended up in the UK. My sister married someone who was British, so they ended up being here. Uh, and my brother found training here, so he ended up coming. So I thought, right, when I qualified, I had the option of moving to the UK because I had access to coming here. We all had residency visas because of my parents. And I thought, yeah, let's try the UK. Mm. And it, there wasn't much thought to it. Um, the only conscious decision I made was moving to Wales. Right. Um, I get asked a lot, like, okay, I don't get it. What are you doing here? Um, I came to visit 
South Wales 2013, looked around and I thought, this is a place for me. Wow. It was simply that. Yeah. And what, and what was it? Was it, was it? was it the people? Was it the scenery? The fish and chips? What was it that drew you? <laughs> it's a combination of the scenery and the people. Right, yeah. Um, one of my earliest memories in Swansea, I, I came to visit a friend of mine who's now an implant surgeon in, in Newcastle, shout out to Ahmed. Um, and I, I, I spent the day walking around and finding my way to I don't know, a post office or whatnot. But every time I asked for directions, people walked me there, mm. as opposed to telling me, or just head down the road and you'll find it. People will physically walk me to where I asked them to take me. Um, and the scenery. I mean, you can see the beach from every corner of Swansea, so why not? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that thing you say about people taking you there, you know, going back to your comments about in, in Sudan, you know, people talk and, and, and they're friendly and there's that kind of community. Perhaps you felt a little bit of that because in the big cities, you know, in Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, London, um, th- those places, everybody seems incredibly busy. And, you know... I've lived in London all my life and I would only still know a handful of people. I only, only know a few hundred people in a city of millions. And so the likelihood when you go out of seeing people you know and being part of that, that community is, is quite, quite slight. Whereas in a smaller, in a smaller town or, or in a more rural area, you're more likely to, to build that community easier. Yeah, and, and that's, that's what keeps me in Swansea. I mean, I'm sure you probably heard this me and my friends chatting at these parties everyone keeps saying to me Ali why don't you come start working for me why don't you come partner with me what and I think why I don't really feel like moving the, the big city life is flashy it's 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 attractive but it doesn't do it for me on a day-to-day basis I mean like there's been several I'm trying to think how many times it happened but a few times where I would be out on a night out and I'd be stood in between two of my patients and we'd call it like I'd, I'd be sandwiched between smiles I've made um <laughs> And, and sometimes they don't know that I've done their teeth and they don't know that I've done their teeth. <laughs> I love that. I love being, you know, I love walking around or driving around Swansea and knowing oh, I've done his person's or his grandma's yeah. dentures, his uncle's this. So it's, mm. it's, it just makes you feel like you're part of something. But also, I mean, the, the UK is a small island. So, you know, you drop down to London quite regularly for different different events and bits and pieces. It, it's not a difficult place to get around. So you can, you know, reside and, and base yourself where suits you, but also still travel around, which isn't isn't a huge, a huge problem. So mm-hmm. your, your so your parents, you know, obviously both both being doctors. And I, I was reading you that when you were a child you weren't a fan of the dentist and you have this phrase which I absolutely love. It was the white coat anxiety which I think is a really great description for how perhaps lots of people feel. And I'm sure there's loads of people that would relate to that. But you then carried that through your professional learning and you did your undergraduate thesis on dental anxiety as well. So, and the effect, and the effect on dental treatment. So what, what, did, what did you learn from that? And have you incorporated that into how you deliver your dentistry when you're an associate and will come on to as a practice owner in a minute? 1,000%. And I think the, the, the biggest learning point from that is insight being able to understand what the patient goes through and seeing that firsthand with me I was a patient that hated the dentist and what made it worse was one of my parents would be stood in the room as well so I'd have two white coats scaring the life out of me (laughs) (laughs) and if anything me me warming up to the dentist only happened when one of my parents or when I started going without my parents and I thought you know, I warmed up to them and eventually she became very informal with me, right? 
mom's not here. Tell me what you've had. How was school today? And I thought, if, if maybe that's the trick. When I, when I did my um, thesis, my qualification thesis, it was the reasons why, we looked at the reasons why um, anxiety affects regular attendance. Mm. What makes people anxious? And most of the time, it wasn't the needles. It wasn't the sharp objects. It wasn't, it was the lack of communication, the lack mm. of rapport with this person who's going to be looking into your mouth. And if you think of how dentistry is done around the world, you get two minutes to fill out your forms and then jump in the chair, open your mouth and the stranger's poking in it. Mm. And I found like, I've gone to every course that is how to sell this, how to, how to encourage patients to take up whitening. How, I found the number one thing, and I, I now teach this in the courses that I teach is take your gloves off and do non-gloved dentistry yeah. and try and be as human as you can, because people won't buy, if, if you, if you become a white coat dentist, like, you know, my parents, <laughs> um, then people will be afraid of you and no one wants to pay money to something that's painful. Yeah. But if you become a human, take your gloves off, sit down, look at them face to face. and mm. there's, a lovely, there's a lovely phrase, which is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that yeah. kind of captures what, what you're saying. Get to know the patient, put them at ease. And I, I guess the technical aspect is almost a given. You, know, you spend a minimum five years at dental school, you do your postgraduate work. From a patient's point of view, they want to feel comfortable. They want to feel they're in the right place. And then from that flows to trust and everything else i'm pretty sure most of my patients have no idea how much training i've done i have to constantly tell them most of my patients who pay big money to have their dentures or their crowns or whatever done with me they don't really care they just like ali they don't know how many letters come after his name they don't know where he's done his training he's a nice guy that's how they that's why they pay me mm. But it's and true, isn't it? And, but the thing is, we do that a lot, don't we? You know, imagine you know, people go to you know, very nice restaurants, but very often they'll comment on the quality of the washroom. Oh, the bathrooms <laughs> are lovely. The soap, oh, it was really... Because those are the things that people kind of see and comment on and, and they're easy to measure because, you know, you see lots of washrooms in your life. When you go to the dentist, you're right. There's, there's an assumption that there's that clinical quality. And it's interesting because typically dentists would spend a lot more time doing clinical training and CPD to really finesse a particular um, specialism within dentistry, but may not spend the same amount of time with, with a CPD hat on, thinking about communication, the psychology of patients, and trying to you know really win the patient in that department as well. Because you know the, the, the CPD seems to be more pushed down the, the, the clinical route. Mm -hmm. Amen. And on that note, I, like I said, I started teaching for the postgrad department in Cardiff, and I frequently get questions from dentists who are trying to do the same journey as I've done, like pass their overseas registration exams, get into dentistry. A lot of questions I get are like, how did you get into private dentistry? How did you do this? And how did you do that? Mm. And dentists almost expect me to give them a list of courses or a list of materials that you can buy that will magically make you a private dentist yeah. or a dentist that, is, that does this and it's not that it's never that it's it's like you said it's it's the trust factor and and making patients feel comfortable mm. which but, those soft skills um just require practice and and honing and time you know you can't mm -hmm. just open a book 
and learn empathy. You, you can't, <laughs> but you can't, can you? You, you? It's one of those things that you have to go through a number of experiences to understand what, what's important and what works and what doesn't work and what suits different different patients in different environments. You just need to build that, that body of experience. And on, on that, so obviously, you, did you say it was 2013 that you, 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 you arrived in the UK and you settled in South Wales? 2013, and then it took me near two years to pass the registration exams, probably the most difficult exams I've ever taken. Um, And what were you doing in that intervening period? Oh, I've done, I was trained to be a door security man, but I ended up working as a warehouse associate in Amazon. Oh. (laughs) That was very fun. I ended up having, the entire shift knew that Ali, the dentist, is working. <laughs> I'd have dental questions left, right, and center. The people be queuing up at lunch break. Ali, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? What do you think of this? Um, it was good fun. They couldn't understand why, as a dentist, I'm working in Amazon. I thought, right, there's a process I have to go through. I'll have to pass these exams, and I'll end up working. Oh, but some of them are still pending, actually. I was going to say, credit to you though. You know, lots of people um, may have felt that, that they were too good for that. You know, the fact that you qualified overseas, you were still a qualified dentist. So the thought of doing that work may not necessarily have appealed. So, but in terms of meeting people and understanding your local community and that kind of building communication skills in, in a relatively new country for you, great, great opportunity. So you got your um, your qualification, you got your certification. So then you worked as an associate across what a number of different practices for a number of years. Yep. So because I was overseas, I had to either wait a long time to get my VT training yep. or arrange it yourself, and that's that's how it was at least when I did it. Mm. You can find the practice, arrange to set up a portfolio of training with them, um, see NHS patients, and at the end of it, you get your performance number. So because I was keen to start, I, I, I moved away from Swansea, I moved it to Pembrokeshire and found because, you know, there's there's less dentists wanting to work there, as you can imagine, um, and then found the practice and did my year of NHS training. And it's funny how I, I, I fought so hard to get my NHS performer number, but not used it since, <laughs> since <laughs> my first locum afterwards was a private role and, and rarely used my NHS performer number afterwards, so... It was an experience. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, I think it's probably a, a good experience because without doubt it gets talked about an awful lot. And um, for many, the NHS is the bedrock of, of dentistry for lots of people in the country. So to have, albeit a limited experience, it still gives you an insight as to how that, that kind of delivery of dentistry works and some of the challenges that, that brings for dentists. Yeah. So you work. So you work privately. Then did you move around a fair bit before you decided to buy a practice to get some some experience, or did you settle in in one practice? Yeah, I mean, it's it was. I did some NHS after the VT year, so I locumed across Pembrokeshire, and then I, w- I woke up one day and thought, right, I've got to move to a bigger city because Pembrokeshire was getting mm. quiet, especially in the winter time. It's dead summertime. You go right. I never want to leave here. Um, so I decided to move to Cardiff. I thought, I've done Swansea, I've seen it, I'm going to move to the city. Moved to Cardiff only to get nice job offers from Swansea. Uh, so I was commuting for a while and in the end I gave up. I just decided to move back to Swansea. Um, I worked in uh, busy private practices, um, one, you know, referral practices, and I've worked in um, the other kind of busy ways, like a huge plan. Um, a plan-based practice and they, they've got thousands of patients registered so I've got I got a taste of everything almost mm. um, 
And then the idea of owning a practice didn't come to me. It wasn't, it wasn't the first thing in my mind. I always thought I want to work somewhere nice and I want it to work this particular way mm-hmm. and I'll be happy and I'll, I'll do a nine to five and I'll go home. But then moving around, I always used to blame the practices. I used to think, right, this is not the ideal practice for me because they don't do it my way. Now, when you repeat that process a few times, you realize there's nothing wrong with those practices. It works for them. But for you to find the practice that works for you, you're just going to have to make it. Yeah. It's, it, it there's, there's no other way around it. Uh, so, it, yeah, it, that, it grew in me very slowly mm-hmm. until and, eventually. And lots of people, I think, just feel comfortable observing the elements of a practice that don't work for them um, and then moving on and, and perhaps getting into another environment which may be less than perfect, but they can still cope with and work. I think there's a there's a different group of people and you fall into this category where you start to pick out the things that you like and the things you don't like and you end up with a carrier bag of the things you like and the things you don't like and at some point you look in the carrier bag of things you like and say wouldn't it be amazing if I could have my own practice and I could use those things but also not have a carrier bag of things that I don't like I could create my own vision I could create my own culture and was that was that kind of the the driver as to why you wanted to to explore buying your practice hundred percent. I, at least it's mine. That, yes. That's what I would say. If it's mine, I'd be happy. Yep. And one thing that's important to highlight is by implying that I want to have it my way, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be better than all the practices that I worked in. If anything, a lot of the practices I worked in are a lot better, a lot much better equipped. It, call, call it whatever, but it's just not my practice. And it's important to understand, like, are you the kind of person that just needs to have something that's yours it's like houses some people are quite happy to rent for many many years some people are adamant to buy a house no matter how broken down it is no matter how much work it needs to be done but they they need to sleep in their own house Mm. and some people go no why should i spend this much money if i can invest it elsewhere and live in a flat it it goes down to the person yeah and i think you're right there's no there's no perfect practice because that would always be determined by what you want to achieve and i think where ownership is the tipping point for lots of people. It is around culture and vision. It's around being able to deliver something that's important to you and, and driven by you, and you're never going to get that somewhere else. So that doesn't mean it's better or worse, but like you say, it, it means it's yours. Um, so just before we get into the, the process and the journey of you, you, you buying the practice, what was the run-up like to that? So you were still an associate. Did you then just immediately say, I want to buy a practice? Did you explore um, other opportunities of a, of a squat? How did you kind of get to that stage where you realized that buying a practice was going to be right for you? It, I think I went through all different types of practices. And I, was, I, I look back now and I think that I'm very lucky that life taught me the hard way. I was frustrated back then. I'm sure, you know, many of our phone calls, I used to get frustrated. It started off thinking, I started off thinking, right, I want a squat practice. But thinking back now, did I want a squat practice because that's the kind of practice that I wanted to own? Or was I just desperate to get into my practice ownership? Mm. I didn't think it through too much. Um, and yeah, so it started off as the squat model um, because I didn't know better. I, I had no understanding of cash flow. I didn't had no understanding of what I could afford because as a typical dentist who has no idea about lending or business or whatnot, you think if I have 10 pounds in my pocket, I can buy candy for nine pounds and have a pound spare. And that's, that's how we were trained. And my parents are both doctors. That's how they taught us that we, we don't understand leverage. We don't understand, you know, mm. in, in, we were growing up, we can only buy a car when we have 
the the price of the car plus this much to save on the yeah. side. Yeah. So that's why the 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 a squat felt more affordable at the time, but it wasn't. But it, it and it was only because a few squat projects didn't work out. I lost a bid to buy an old building. Mm. Um, I couldn't agree a lease on it and on a leasehold shop front. I ended up at this dream practice that I'm in now. And I thought, right, what have you got to lose, Ali? And I, I, I learned that in the process. If you don't know, just try anyway. It'll yeah. be a learning experience. Yeah. Then I realized, actually, I can afford this. Forget yeah. the numbers. Yeah. Ask, ask a specialist, can you afford this? And they'll, tell, they'll give you an answer. I think, uh, I think you're get... right. Well, I think what you said, Neil, I've said it before. Um, I think naivety in business is a, is a really helpful skill. I think as you get older and you start to see so many um, options and variables and scenarios, it's easy to become a little bit wizened and a bit, a bit solid and, and you kind of don't see the opportunities because you always find reasons why don't, things don't work out. But I think early on in, your, in, in the process, when you are a little bit naive, it's good because that, that naivety drives you forward. You don't see the problems. You don't put barriers in place yourself. And I think what you've described going through that kind of looking at squats and then deciding to go for a practice, you know, okay, there might have been a bit of naivety in there, but hey, it's worked out. You know, you, you've, you've got the practice and you've, you've moved forward, which is amazing. Yeah, we're still here. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Here. So you're now the principal of Mumbles Dental Spa, which is a three surgery private practice um, mm -hmm. on the on the coast of, of Wales, down Swansea Way. You're exploring putting in a fourth surgery as well, which is great. So you're you're quite new into the process. You've been a principal now for how many months? Since the first of August is when I picked up the keys. First of August, so it's still quite early on. Going through the process of, of buying the practice, what did you what did you learn about yourself going through that process? Because it's it's unique for everybody. But but what did you learn about about Ali? Ooh. it's if if you take the last two years, because the, the, buying the practice, it, this practice since shaking hands and collecting keys, it took 14, 15 months mm -hmm. almost. But since before COVID slightly until now, the amount of learning I've done about myself was insane. Like, I, I don't even know who I was prior to 2015 or prior to 2019, sorry. Because, you know, the, those, those cliches that we used to hear or see on social media, when it applies to you in real life and you go, <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's what they meant. Understanding why I want things, why I don't want things, why I get upset. Why I, why I disagree with people, why I didn't agree with this person, why? Mm. And when you make that, when you stop making it personal, you don't go, right, this person's, this practice isn't my type of practice, or they just didn't like me, or they, mm. they don't. You understand that people have different perspectives, people have different ways of processing things. There's different types of people. Some mm. people just don't want to rest and constantly want to run. Some people want to rest. And when you have... When your culture doesn't fit in with a group of other people's culture, I'm not talking about where you're from, but the culture of who you are, mm. then it will never work. Yeah. And once you understand that, it gives you a bit of peace. You can't put, a, you know, you can't put someone who's, you can't put a vegan in the middle of a steakhouse and expect them to be comfortable. Yeah. It's just not going to work. None of them is, you know, you can be a vegan or you can be a meat eater, but they all have their different philosophies, the, the things they believe in. You can't make people crash and expect them to perform at their best. Mm. And I think uh, understanding and learning that 
so early on is is so powerful because as you go forward um i I have this whole thing that if we take somebody you know if we if we employ somebody and they join the team and it doesn't work out i like to take the attitude that they they're not bad people they just need to be happy somewhere else they just didn't fit in they just didn't fit in with our style of working and that doesn't make us better than them it just means they didn't fit in i think what you're saying is that kind of having that maturity to say right not everything's going to be perfect i've got a certain way of doing things and that might suit some people it might not suit others but but that's okay it doesn't make me right and them wrong it's just a case of trying to put together the best package of of everything people whatever's needed um so that you end up with the the best business possible who did you um who did you seek advice from kind of in the early days when you were thinking about this as a concept and and through the process where did you kind of you know get your your knowledge and information from oh one of my earlier mentors was midi oh <laughs> wow midi, midi, i called midi at the early days where i was just confused I knew I wanted to buy a practice and he, he took on the older brother role of being quite harsh to me. And I, I thank him for that because if he didn't do that, the world would have done it to me. Just, just, for, people, just for people that don't know, Midday is Midday Ojo and he runs um, a dental practice called Refresh Dental down in Twickenham, which he set up as a squat. And honestly, he, he is such a great, generous guy. So it doesn't surprise me that he was as helpful. But sorry, yeah, go on, Ali. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he, he, was, he was quite brutal to me. Um, I think the first time I rang him, he said, you're not ready to buy a practice. It's not for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if he hadn't done that, you know, again, the immature Ali a few years ago would be like, right, this is personal. This is why. And But for some reason, I sat down and took it positively. I, I asked myself, why? Look at yourself from his point of view. What have you got to present? Besides your, your willingness to buy a practice, what else have you prepared? What makes you think you're ready? And when you start processing things like that, it prepares you for, I think, it prepares you for practice ownership because nothing's personal. Everything is, well, ask yourself why. Mm. Like I'm at the stage now where you cannot possibly shock me with anything. If you tell me the practice is burnt down, I'll be like, right, okay, what are our options? Does insurance cover it? Does it not cover it? If you control your emotions, you will... I think you'll have a more sustainable dental career because if, if everything gets to you, then you'll just, mm. you'll waste yourself. I think if you can control your emotions in, in situations where it's important, it gives you that, that time to respond rather than react. I think if you, if you let your emotions take over, you react to situations, which isn't always good. Whereas I think if you can just give yourself a few seconds and not make it an emotional response, you get to respond to scenarios as opposed to react to them because reacting is normally an emotional response. So I think what you've, what you've learned is a, is, is a great life skill. And I was a very emotional, reactive person. Yeah. <laughs> on the time. I mean, parts of me are still quite reactive, but we live, we learn. Absolutely. So going back, would you... Would you do anything differently if we could rewind the clock a couple of years? Would you take a different path, or I'd say no. I, I'm 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 content with with where I am. Mm. Um, you know, the, the the not so great parts of me that taught me a lot of good lessons. The great parts of of the journey were quite fun. So I I wouldn't change a thing. Mm. And you. You've always struck me as being an incredibly positive person, whether it's your content on social media, whenever we have conversations, uh, if ever we meet up, you, you always strike me as somebody who who just wakes up on the right side of bed every day. 
going through the process of, of buying a dental practice, I, I know from my work in Frank Turner Associates, it, it can be challenging. And I, I know it, it's quite a long process. Uh, it can be quite stressful. It's time consuming. Um, how did you feel that based on your own experience, posit- being positive and, and having a positive mindset got you through that process? Well, was it was it important? Were there times when you would have to dig in and, and you know, believe it was going to happen? You so as as positive as you can be, you will run out of positivity at one point, hmm. and it's you'll need to learn how to refuel that quick. You'll need it's. I mean, I mean, if I, if I sat here and told you, yes, I'm a positive person, I'm immune to feeling negative, I'd be lying. And having a close circle around you that refills that. It doesn't have to be the immediate circle on your day to day life, but it's people that you can go to have an hour, two hour conversation with them and you'll come back a different person. And the more of them you have, the better you will be. And you'll be more prepared to tackle whatever in life. And like I said, it doesn't have to be your friends, your partner, your family. It's Mm. your niche. These are people that vibe with you. Mm. And I was very lucky to have a very strong circle around me. Mm. And you still, so put another way, I'll describe those as mentors. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're people and have you carried those people forward with you were they people that you kind of saw as being useful at that time in that process all these people who you th- think are going to guide you through your future career yeah and, and i'd like to think i have different types of mentors i have mentors that i i go to for guidance but sometimes you just want people to to prop you back up yeah. when you feel yeah. broken and you feel like beaten up and you don't necessarily learn from them but it's just the mutual support. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those I found like in, in processes that can be challenging where it doesn't, it's, you just need patience. You know, it's not a new skill. It's not like I'm doing a full mouth rehab or I'm doing, I'm taking on something new. It's just, you just need to learn to be patient. You want some reassurance almost. Mm. Um, it, it, it's that, that network of mutuals that you need. Mm. And a lot of it, I mean, you've seen how in, in the parties that we meet, yeah. I might look like I'm having fun, but what I'm actually doing is I'm recharging my energy as well. Yeah. I want to go home and feel um, inspired again. Yeah. No, I, I think that word mutual is quite nice because I'm sure there's a lot of people that use use you in that capacity as well. They'll reach out to you because you have way more positive days than than, than not based on my experience of you. So (laughs) people will take energy from you. And I think you're right. I think we all go through moments where we kind of feel we need to recharge and having that, that skill to know when to do that before we get exhausted is, is, is a real skill. Yeah. Just before we came and um, started recording, you were saying that you've, you've enjoyed a weekend off, which is probably your first weekend since you, you bought the practice. And, to hear that was amazing that was great because that's a form of you being able to recharge so you stay absolutely brilliant for your team and patients mm. yeah because otherwise you 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 yeah you'll just disappear you'll burn out <laughs> yeah. there's, there's no other way yeah and in when when we were sort of um I was doing the preparation for this. You you don't want to burn out fully because you need to keep lots of energy because I understand you're a big latin dancer yes I never about... knew. I never knew. I mean, I, I clearly knew you were a dancer, but Latin, Latin dancing, that's your thing. Yes. So I do salsa, <laughs> a little bit of bachata, and kizomba samba. These are all partner dances that I travel all over the world to go do. Um, and that's my switch off. So there's, there's two times where I'm fully switched off. If I've got a patient with a rubber dam in their mouth and I'm just doing a quadrant full of fillings, 
I switch off and I'll focus just on that. And the second time I switch off is when I'm dancing. It's it's my therapy. And do I don't talk and, much about and, it. I, I was going to say, sing. and you still manage to keep it up as well. I mean, obviously not at the moment yeah. because you could, you literally just bought your practice and you're really busy. But when everything calms down, do you, do you go to the what, dance competitions? How does that? Well, I, I I did sneak a cheeky trip to Malaga last <laughs> on the eighth, but I finished my last patient, drove to the airport, came back from the airport, came home, and straight to the practice. Um, right. it, it's uh, yeah. So it, the way it works is you will have it's quite a huge scene. Um, and if anyone's in London, if you check out Bar Salsa in Soho and in Temple, it's 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 I almost call it like we're underground vampires <laughs> because we all know each other and we're all addicted to dance. So you'll the the venue the the events I go to are they'll have workshops in the daytime and in the evening it's just social dancing. So you dance until your feet are swollen. Wow. Wow. As, as somebody that honestly my dance skills, my dance skills and my singing skills are they're appalling so to, to hear somebody who who loves it so much is is like so i'm quite envious of you i'm quite envious of you and a great release for you as well it is music brings me to life i'm sure you've, you've witnessed that first <laughs> um like in the practice now there's music blasting throughout the building yeah um well not blasting so much when patients are in but at mm. the start of the day we start off with music playing out loud and at yeah. the end of the day playing out loud I think, for, I think for i think for energy it's good um do, 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 do you know angela orlock angela orlock and dev uh, women yeah, yeah. dental rooms so they mm -hmm. quite often post online in the morning they have people dancing around the practice in the morning and loud music and i think from an energy point of view it's brilliant but also i'm going back to that thing about tribes i think if people kind of buy into that it pulls people together it's a bit of fun and it gets people moving around it's nice it is. It, it does. It does. And people will miss it when you don't do it. If yes. I come in on a less positive day and I'm exhausted and I just had a phone call with the bank manager, whatnot, and I just come in and do the dentistry, you get a tap on your shoulder from the yeah. nurse or reception saying, uh, "Excuse me, can you bring the energy back up again? Because I'm expecting this." Yeah, yeah. Um, and the thing is, as a lead, as a leader in your business, it's great to have other leaders, but you're the ultimate leader, so you will set the tone. So if you come in with your head down, going shut the door to your surgery, the mood in your practice will be affected by how you how you behave. So if you come in, even if it's not a great day for you, you know you need to pull your shoulders back and put the music on, isn't it? Because that sets the tone. You have no choice because no. yeah, you've told them this is how we operate. So yeah. if you don't, that you, yeah, you're letting them down. Yeah. Good. Good. It looks to me and it sounds like you're enjoying practice ownership. It's early days, but I get the sense and, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about it over time, but I get the sense that it's, it's something that's, that's really rewarding. It's, you know, for, it's, it's been the best thing I've ever done. I miss it already. I, I drove out to come have this chat with you and I can't wait to get back in because it's even on the days where I'm not working or the sessions where, it, where it's, where I'm just doing admin. I just love being there. I love walking around. It's, it's, I feel more homey there than I do in, in my own home. Mm, that's true. That's, that's, that's good. It's working out because you never know. You never know. Like I have had people who've um, bought or set up practices and for whatever reason, it's not worked for them and they want to go back and work as an associate and other people, it takes quite a while for them to really bed in and, and understand what it's about and feel comfortable. And then there's a guy like you who was just ready for it and you've just gone in, you've got the keys to the door, you've opened it and it feels like home. That's lovely to hear. Just feel like I'm 
Good, good. So, Ali, we always finish up in the same way. Um, and so the the first question I have for you is if you could be a fly on the wall uh, in a certain situation, where where would that be and what would you be, be looking over? I thought about this. And I think if I chose any important person or or any famous person or whatnot, then I'd, I'd want to learn from their life experience. It's like if I met, I don't know, Bill Gates, or if I was in Bill Gates' wall as a flyer as well, I'd be like, right, that's how he does it. So I'm going to go back and apply it to my life. Thinking of it that way, I'd like to see myself in 10 years. Wow. There's, there's nothing more informative. Like if I can see myself in 10 years, have a 10 minute conversation with them, or just observe how they're alive, then, then I'll get reassurance. I'll get, oh, that's, there's nothing I want more. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Because, yeah, that, yeah, effectively, you would see how the path you're on has has planned out, which then it gives you a degree of, of, of comfort that you, you know what, what things look like. As long as in 10 years' time it's looking good and you're not on a park bench and, you know, <laughs> everything's gone horribly wrong, which I'm sure it wouldn't have. <laughs> Well, on the plus side, if it is horribly wrong, then I can, you know, you can do care something a lot about it. Enjoy my life. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter anyway. And if you could, if you could meet meet, meet somebody uh, other than yourself, if you could sit down and have a, a glass of wine or a coffee and and meet somebody, either living, dead, you know, fictitious, a real person, who would you like the opportunity to sit down with and have a chat? Nelson Mandela. Mm. Um, I, I from a, my the first book my dad ever bought me was a long walk to freedom, mm. his biography. Yeah, and I was fascinated by him. And and the the more I learn about him, I was I was gutted I couldn't meet him or at least be near him before he's passed. And the patience that that man had is was unbelievable. Mm. That's one thing I, I I would have loved to have a glass mm. of wine or a cup of coffee or whatever. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it would be incredible. And I think in a an ever-increasingly fast-moving world, I think that skill of patience and slowing down um, is something that would be good in many parts of life to get back to. So, yeah, I think you'd be a wonderful person to sit down with. Mm-hmm. Ali, I appreciate your time. You're a new practice owner. It's not easy. You've got many pressures and many things putting you in different directions. So to find time to sit down and share with us your journey has been absolutely wonderful um i know you've got a patient coming in 15 minutes which is the, li- <laughs> the life of a busy dentist so i really appreciate your time this morning and, and hopefully we'll be catching up again soon at uh, an event somewhere definitely thank you very much for having me andy cheers ali it's been really good thanks a lot thank you for listening to this episode of dentology where we discuss the business of dentistry if you like what you heard please do subscribe where you found this episode that would be amazing and also follow us on instagram